0: And a very warm welcome aboard the pirate ship the Reeve Gauche and to the Captain's Table podcast brought to you by Are You Not Entertained and the brilliant sport and entertainment team at Howden Insurance Brokers. I'm Giles Morgan. I'm not actually a captain or indeed a pirate, but a vague ancestor of mine, Captain Henry Morgan, actually was one and his family all came from Wales as well. For 30 years, I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world as a boring old marketing suit in the sports industry. And along that journey, I have got to rub shoulders with the good, the bad, and the ugly from the world of sport. Having ditched the pinstripe suit for britches and the red waistcoat and cutlass that befits a pirate captain, I set out to create this podcast where I simply ask my special guests from the world of sport to share their own personal memories of being a sports fan and how that passion has affected and shaped their lives. Okay, well, ahoy there, my hearties, and a warm welcome back on board my pirate ship, the Reeve Gauche, and for another episode of The Captain's Table, a show that is brilliantly supported by the sport and entertainment team at Howden Group, the international insurance brokers who are hosting us here in their fantastic and glorious offices in the heart of the city of London. Can you believe it? It's been a year since we all met in April 22, and my goodness, so much has happened in the world of sport since then. Our last guest was Guy Kinnings, the head honcho of the Ryder Cup and DP uh, World Tour, who was a brilliant guest and many, many anecdotes, but little did he know that his world was about to explode with the creation of the Live Golf Series. We had some brilliant feedback from that show, which is recorded in front of a live audience. And tonight, some of the great and the good from the world of sport and entertainment are here in the audience to add ballast to the show. And so please excuse their coughs and sputters in the background, or worse still, the sounds of glass chinking and wine slurping. They look an unruly lot. Happily, they're going to join me and my guests for a slap-up dinner after the show. Anyway, to the business in hand. My guest this month is simply one of the most important movers and shakers in the world of the NFL, or in English, American football, arguably the most commercially valuable sport in the world. Dee Smith joins me on the Reeve Gauche. Dee is the executive director of the National Football League Players Association, called the NFLPA, a role he has held since 2009. In an ocean where catfish, piranhas, and sharks swim, he has held the post over five three-year terms and was last year named one of the top 10 most influential people in sport globally and that's really no surprise because nfl is the biggest of the big in sport and for many of my guests in the past the super bowl remains on the bucket list of so many sports fans globally the commercial values in the sport from sponsorship income player wages and media rights are just off the scale and along with the indian premier league and the english premier league These are the big titans of sport today. And as with all sports, the two most important components are obviously the fans and the athletes. And as the executive director of the Players' Union, Dee's raison d'etre is quite simply to look after and represent those players in every aspect of their life. During his 14-year tenure, he has not been idle he has negotiated two comprehensive collective bargaining agreements and is currently the longest-serving executive director of a major sport union anywhere in the world. As the chief executive officer of the NFLPA's for-profit company, Players Incorporated, he has guided annual revenues of over $200 million and witnessed the largest growth in players' marketing and licensing. In March 2020, he successfully negotiated his second long-term collective bargaining agreement with the National Football League. And this 11-year deal provides players with their guaranteed highest share of NFL revenue in history, including improved health care, pensions and benefits for all of the players, a 20% increase in the salaries of the core players, and reach back to the players who had previously retired with full benefits. Prior to his election as the executive director, Dee has been recognized as one of the best trial lawyers in the USA. He is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. He was an assistant United States attorney in the District of Columbia for nearly a decade. And I can hear his elfin and lightweight athletic footsteps on the gangplank right now. So let's welcome him to the (laughs) captain's table. It's a pleasure. (laughs) Welcome aboard. Thank you, thank you. It's good to have you on on the Reeve Goshen to the captain's table. Make yourself at home, are you comfy? Feels a little unsteady. Yeah, well, uh, there you go. Thank you. Feel better Uh, already. And um, please be aware of all the pets and the dogs, uh, the parrot, uh, John, Um, he squawks a bit, and this rabble of a crew. They've all come to look at you and to see (laughs) you, and I hope they behave, but they may not. We opened the bar a little bit early, and God knows what might happen. So. Are you happy with your drink? Because we've got the, the head steward uh, there, chief steward, Duncan Fraser, from Howden Sport, Ned Seyman. Thank you. He wants to give you a fresh I glass. I feel better now. It's, it's vintage champagne. Well done. Enjoy. Well done. <laughs> so, D, to business. Where were you brought up? What, what's your story? Born and raised in uh, Washington, D.C.
1: Uh, parents moved up, uh, one from Danville, Virginia, which is on the border of North Carolina. Uh, my mother moved up from Atlanta, Georgia, um, I uh, was born in uh, 1964. They met in 1960. And uh, for some reason, you know, they, they kept me around. Uh, I, I managed to find my way home every night. And at least as far as I know, the, the key worked in the door. So grew up there and uh, went to college uh, in a small school in Ohio. Uh, went to law school at the University of Virginia. And then, uh, uh, most importantly, met my wife, uh, whose birthday is today.
0: Happy birthday, Kyle. Um,
1: we found a spot for her on the ship. Yeah. Uh, the first person. Will be separate cabins on separate this boat. Separate cabins.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, boy, we're just going to go. We're going to go. We're <laughs> going to go. And were you a sporty child? I was.
1: Uh, I played uh, basketball uh, and played football. My high school football coach would probably say that I was the worst football player he's ever seen. Virtually everybody in the stands felt the same. My parents felt the same, which yeah. was also kind of odd. But uh, yeah, I grew up playing uh, playing sports, ran track in college, and then um,
0: and as a know. fan of sport when you were a young lad and yeah. you've got sport around you. Who, what were the sort of the, the the influences of sport that really got to you? That I grew up in Washington D.C., so everybody comes out of the
1: womb in Washington D.C. a fan of the Washington football team. So, the fans that I was, you know, with my my parents, we were diehard. They still are diehard football fans. I grew up with players like Sonny Jurgensen and um, Larry Brown. Later on. Joe Theismann, you know, winning the the championship in, uh Did you get to go
0: to games? Like, Did you see Oh, yeah. Games? So
1: uh, we grew up in the shadow of RFK Stadium, Robert F. Kennedy Stadium, which, you know, now is a decrepit falling apart. It looks a little bit like the ship, actually.
0: Yeah, um, Thanks for that. Yeah, that's yeah, right. It's that's right. right. It's, uh, we're trying to keep it a family show. Howden are trying to re- <laughs> repaint it as we go. There we
1: go. Uh, RFK was one of the smallest stadiums in the National Football League, I think, at capacity maybe 55 Thousand people, but my, my dad had season tickets. Uh, started going to those games in the early 70s. One of the best places to be on earth on Sunday morning.
0: Yeah, absolutely one of the best. Fantastic. And who are your earliest sporting heroes? Who is on the poster on your bedroom? But if I'm allowed to ask this, a bedroom wall. <laughs> I was gonna say Pam
1: Greer, but you said sporting. <laughs> well, you're saying sporting, uh, yeah. Um, Never mind. Uh, yeah. Come back. Larry, I'm back. You're back. I'm back. I'm back. Uh, Larry, <laughs> it was close. Larry Brown was a fantastic Hall of Fame running back for the Washington team. Joe Theismann uh, was a great quarterback. Um, there was a defensive back named Brig Owens who um, was a defensive back who I wore his number when I was in high school. Uh, later on, we got to be good friends, and he was actually the person who talked me in to accepting wow. this job. Yeah. Wow. Think about that, right?
0: And when you think of yourself as a fan now, and obviously your work takes you all over your country and to many, many stadiums, but do you have a a favorite sporting stadium that sort of holds its place in your own heart, somewhere that you love to go as your (coughs) own cathedral?
1: Um, You know, it was RFK um, that closed. After that, I I have to be dead honest, one of the most beautiful stadiums I've been in where I felt an intimacy was, was Tottenham Stadium. I like stadiums that remind me of RFK, they're close. The sight lines are great. You feel like you're on top of everybody. Sort of a lusty, throaty mm-hmm. way in which the fans can, um, can achieve. I mean, we have a number of great stadiums for football. SoFi Stadium is beautiful, but a little antiseptic for my purposes.
0: I think we need to take you to Cardiff, which is in Wales. I'll, is it, is I'll is go. It, it? You, you, you have me at home, in this, this, There'll be someone in this room who can get you to Cardiff, which is, I think, it's a vertiginous stadium. Mm. A lot of beer. It's a very <laughs> special place. Uh, as well,
1: I think stadiums that um, where you feel the ethos of what the fans bring—that's what I love. I mean, what happens on the field, what happens on the pitch, is what happens on the pitch. But you know, there's some stadiums where you just actually feel like you're a participant, you're partaking in a in an almost solemn, sacred event. That's where I like to go.
0: And I think I know the answer to this. So, if you have the choice of watching, say, a football game—football sounds like your, your your number one love. Do you prefer to be in a in a bar? Do you prefer to be at home on your sofa, chilling out with a decent bottle of red or white, Mm. or do you like to be right in it in the stadium? Uh, At home
1: with a glass of tequila.
0: (laughs) So, uh, well, you asked. I did, (laughs) and you delivered. And tell me, are you emotional? Have you ever cried watching sport?
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean, I can probably not a lot. I mean, I can remember when the Washington team lost the Super Bowl to the undefeated Miami Vikings. I remember crying like a child. Probably the last time I cried though at a game, my son played five years of lacrosse for Maryland, thankfully won a national championship his last year, but the year before lost the national championship by one. That was the last time I cried at a game. Uh, primarily because you realize that then as a dad, you know, you're a great fan, and you're loving every moment of the game and, and your highs, lows, everything. But then when you watch your son lose a national championship by one, you realize, okay, now you have to become a father and you have to put him back together. So uh, that was it. But other than that, I think the last time I cried for a sporting event was probably running out of tequila.
0: (laughs) And if the RFK Stadium was still there, Mm. I haven't watched a lot of sport in America, but I'm known for my eating. And there is, we have here. Where is this going? No, we have, we have, stadium food in this country is traditionally, you have kind of dodgy burgers, hot dogs, uh, yeah. but it's, ours is sort of, anyway, it's what it is, but it's a part of the ritual. Yep. We're at halftime at RFK Stadium. Oh. What is easy. your stadium food? Easy grilled sausage,
1: peppers, onions, mustard. And would you
0: have a pint of lager with that a pint of beer? Uh,
1: I'm not much of a beer yeah. guy. I would okay. look for
0: tequila
1: yeah yeah. thank you very much you know you have a good crowd they're They're on it good
0: crew crew. and i imagine as people you know i I know people at the nfl probably desperately trying to keep the peace with you because you are quite an inflammatory character um is there an event that you haven't been to in the world that is on your own personal bucket list of something around Mm. the world that you would love to go to wimbledon my
1: wife loves tennis i think it's another one of those places right where it's just doesn't matter who's playing. It's iconic. It's laden with history. The fans bring a certain reverence to the site, yeah. right? Even before the event starts,
0: it's it's the site. Mm-hmm. So I would love to, to love to see that. Okay, that's good to know. There may be someone again in the audience and this crew who may be able to No help. one's coming forward. They're not yet. So. And they won't. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shameless, shameless plug. <laughs> and is there, a, again, you've been many people in this room we, from the sports industry have had the privilege of working alongside or meeting their sporting heroes and people mm. in all sorts of different sports. But I wonder for you, is there someone that you never met, dead or alive, that you wish you'd been able to shake hands with and, and to break bread with? I've got two. Well, two one I actually did meet. So if I had to meet someone that I've
1: never met before, Arthur Ash you know, again, someone who was iconic as a young, you know, as a, as a young, young man watching, watching sport. The best person I ever met was Muhammad Ali. You met him. Muhammad Ali was, uh, it must have been 1987. Stop it. <laughs> People are doing the math. I'm 35 years old. Um, uh, I was in law school, had a wonderful professor named Steve Salzberg who taught us constitutional law. And, uh, uh, the day's lecture was on the Supreme Court reversing Muhammad Ali's conviction for avoiding the draft, and he said we have a special guest, and it was Muhammad Ali. Wow! And you're in law school, and Muhammad Ali comes down the aisle. I mean, I, thats it. It was—it was over. So um, he lectured, uh, gave a great lecture. And how was that? I was going to ask? How was the lecture? It was fantastic. Was he? I, you know, I was dreaming, but but it was fantastic. We went. Um, because I was you know okay, I was the teacher's pet, um, six of us went to lunch with Muhammad Ali afterwards, and to this day, my most prized possession is a note to D. Smith from Muhammad Ali
0: which is amazing because an awful lot of the people who've been on the show, Muhammad Ali, as you'd expect, would be on that list. Oh. just give it I, this we're really going on to ad lib now, but what did you take from I think he was voted the twentieth century greatest athlete uh, and he for all sorts of reasons but Was there a presence to the guy that you've never seen before? What was it?
1: I think it was a a, a convergence of, you know, four or five different things. Well, first, you know, he's someone I saw as an iconic athlete as a kid. Um, So that's kind of the first frame. Second, the way he fits in the civil rights movement is one of those stories that frames the role of sports in, in society. Third, you know, he has a classic battle with the United States government, that results in a criminal conviction um, that is later overturned by the Supreme Court, and then you know, last, you know, you you realize that this was a person who was robbed of what you know a, a number of years in the prime of his career, and you know, as as fans, we love watching the stories of our athletes, and and nothing resonates more with I think a fan than a comeback story, so you have a convergence of this person who's iconic to me personally you know, fits into this, this role of a law school student, a future lawyer, and then is there to tell a story and, and embodying the comeback, probably the greatest comeback of any athlete, I would argue, in history. Um, they're live, and, and the fact that he comes in and he's humble and he was funny and he was witty, but this pure understanding that an athlete, You know, and and I was not a particularly good one. But what athlete lives in a world where they choose to do something that puts the majority of their career on hold? No athlete does that. Mm -hmm. And and to see a person who made that choice, suffered those consequences for a higher ideal, um, I'm not sure I have met. I've met some tremendous athletes. I'm not sure I'll ever meet uh, uh, an athlete that meant more to me at a moment than
0: him. And where do you think that? I'm really I want to drill into this. Where where do you think that conviction came from, from the young Cassius Clay? I mean, was this something that was born, that it was nurtured through his upbringing? Because that defined him. All of the the things you just find it, but where does that come from? Do you think? I I
1: think it has to. I think it has to come from where an individual person finds himself at an individual moment in history. And, you know, and I've seen every documentary. I was, you know, thankfully on a, on a Bob Costas show uh, with his daughter uh, now about three years ago when, when they launched the, the, the most recent uh, Ken Burns documentary. And if you haven't seen it, it's tremendous, uh, much like anything Ken Burns does. But, um, you know, she tells the story of him coming to grips with um, his role as an athlete, um, his place in society, but also his personal religious conviction and, and remember I mean this wasn't a this wasn't a polar choice for him I mean he could have easily gone into the military and done what other athletes have done you know they do the you know the circuit where they're certainly not going to combat so he had that as an option he walked away from the easiest option and I think that has to be a personal decision because as someone who represents a group of athletes who have a career expectancy of about three and a half years very few of our players if any would ever choose to remove themselves from that stage in that moment for something higher bigger more significant and more impactful than sport
0: amazing one of the questions i ask and and maybe this guy will he'll get he'll get into this but i don't know if you well, I think you play bad golf. You I play the Horrible worst golf. golf. Well, then we will... I see you and raise you, my friend. <laughs> well, I, I, there's enough people in here. I, would, yeah, I, would, yeah, I have friends. <laughs> I have friends. Not very good ones, but no, I do but they, have yeah. friends. Or tennis or paddle yeah. or whatever. I mean, if you had a, a, a foursome that you could play with, whether, let's call it golf. Yeah. Dead or alive, who would be the three and you can be the captain?
1: Uh, first, I've got to say my wife um, because she's here and I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, if I had to choose a foursome, um, <laughs> this is okay. Abraham Lincoln. Really? Uh, I mean, well, I c- carry the bag. Um, I'd probably pick Frederick Douglass uh, and Benny Hill.
0: Benny? Hill. I'm kidding! <laughs> wow. He's been canceled. He's been canceled. You can't have Benny Hill. I would Hill. have. Uh, I got you, though. You can't. Got, I got you, though. <laughs> um uh, we shouldn't have gone out on that side. We shouldn't have gone.
1: I'd probably pick uh <laughs> Billie Jean king i i love i love people who find themselves in moments where they have to make a personal decision that for the most part doesn't inure to their either financial or personal benefit um and and I think that that is a that's an interesting place for for us as as students of history to really figure out what it means to be a leader, how to make important decisions. I love sport, but how do we place it
0: in uh, our in our society? And what you're saying is with Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean, two people who oh. shifted the sports and, and and did so much societally and culturally. Paradigm glo- shifts globally,
1: right? Yeah. Right. I mean, and and, and think. Again, those moments were, were, were moments where someone was probably counseling them, <laughs> don't do this, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: right? Um, you're going to hurt your career. It's going to put too much pressure on you. So um, again, athletes who, who perform at a time where they choose to overlay themselves with something bigger,
0: yeah.
1: um, I just find interesting and fascinating.
0: So let's go on to the NFLPA. This might be the serious segment of the show, but I'm not, not guaranteeing. Yeah, well, you know. But you've been the US, you yeah. You, you've been the kingpin there for, for some time since 2009. Yep. Um, for most British people in this room, um, and in fact, Andrew Croker was hugely involved, who's in the audience. American football really came to this country in 1982, mm-hmm. and people like um, William Perry and Walter Payton became yep. household names on, sure. on terrestrial on a newly launched terrestrial yes. um, platform as well. So. Yeah it's now grown and grown and grown in terms, obviously, now with NFL playing over here in London. But I've heard on podcasts before, you've talked about you were there to look after, represent, and improve the life of the laborers, which were the, the, the players, because they lived within a world of owners, and there were workers, and the owners were significantly better off. You joined in 2009, and... They, I think at the time they were being asked to give up their pension, 20% of their salaries, and even play an 18th game for free. I, they were being shafted. Yes. Yeah. Technical term. Yeah. You weren't from football other than being a fan, and this was the ultimate nest of vipers, of billionaires and ego. Yeah. And your career, as I've read, was going just fine. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It so, was good. So, don't, don't tell my way. So why did you dive in? Um...
1: I, you know, you, you you get a call like that, and and who and gives you
0: the call? Where does that come? I got from?
1: a strange call from a some search firm, and I was working at the time on um, on the Obama campaign. He won the election. I was working on the transition team for the Department of Justice, and my career was headed back to government. And uh, got a call, <laughs> and uh, I I didn't return the call for about four weeks because I I, I didn't. Well, they didn't tell me what it was, and I wasn't interested. So. Right. Uh, when they told me what the fight was about that piqued an interest in, um, and first the unfairness of it, and, and my practice at the time, you know, with, with Heather McPhee and, and some others at, at, um, at Patton Boggs, was representing large companies, big fights. And, and this turned out to be one of the biggest fights um, that that I've ever seen. And And it was leveraged in a way against the people that did the work that, that seemed um,
0: shafted. And give us some context here for the non-Americans, because yep. this is part of the history of the game. So 2009, you come in. You're faced with a pretty irresistible force against you, the players, yep. representing the players. So play out the timeline. What, what happened and what, yeah. what, what came out of, of that moment over the two, three years uh, of that?
1: Well, I, you know, it was, it was incredible. So uh, I have got a call, the first call in probably October of 2008. Um, I interviewed with uh, the executive committee mm, probably around November, maybe early December of 2008 and back then on the executive committee. Fortunately, um, Drew Brees, Hall of Famer, uh, Brian Dawkins, Mike Vrabel um, were on the executive committee. And I remember the first time I met with them, they said, "Okay, you know, now is the time where you you tell us why you you want the job. And I I said to him, I don't want the job. Um, I'm, I'm not really interested in this job. I'm interested in you know what you are thinking about as players because they have $4 billion to lock you out. The owners have said that this is the deal that's on the table and other than an existential threat to your well-being, you have to make a decision about whether you want to engage in a fight with these owners because this is not a bargaining strategy, this is not a negotiation strategy, this is an existential wipe you off the face of the planet strategy, and um, after sort of the stun silence that that happened in that room, you know, I sort of laid out three or four things that I would do. They said, very, you know, thank you very much for coming. Um, and I walked out of the room, and the the search firm uh, person said, Hey, congratulations, you're not going to get this job. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember flying home. I think that night was the night of the inauguration for the president. And um, when we landed, one of my uh, uh, individuals that I work with now called and said, the rumor is you're one of the final three. So fast forward, got elected in March of 2009. We got locked out in, in March of 2011. And thankfully, we sort of engaged in a in, in a in a strategy where, I think I told you last night, I was stunned by the hubris of the owners who kept saying that they had $4 billion to lock the players out. And and for anybody who was in business after the financial collapse of 2008, um, the first thing that that comes to mind if you were there after 2008 is, no one has $4 billion. (laughs) Um, And you couldn't borrow $4 billion. You couldn't borrow $400, let alone $4 billion. So we started thinking down this strategy of, of where could they possibly get $4 billion and stumbled upon an idea that they must have got the $4 billion from our TV networks, and the networks must have given them the money in exchange for whatever. The legal theory was that we are third-party beneficiaries of those dollars, and if the league took $1 less for the insurance of the $1 billion, you know, times four, they were harming the financial interest of the players, and a federal court judge agreed with us and froze their $4 billion. And uh, then one night, uh, a good friend of all of ours, Dave Barrett, another great lawyer at, uh, at Latham, we were thinking about this idea of what if we could transfer the risk of the lockout? The fact that 2,300 players would be locked out. What if we could transfer the risk? What if we could somehow purchase insurance? And we met a completely brilliant person in the name of, of Duncan, your first mate, um, who was, you know, oddly a much better uh, uh, person in insurance than serving drinks. Um, okay, slightly better. Um, and, um, and we purchased the first ever, and as far as I can tell, the only ever lockout insurance policy. So we bought an insurance policy, and most importantly, kept it secret. So we bought an insurance policy. Our executive committee authorized me to pay the, pay the premium, which we did. And the strategy was, you know, it sounds simple, but, you know, it, it's the reason why I have no hair left. Uh, we bought the insurance policy and the strategy was if we could freeze their $4 billion and we would have an insurance policy that would pay our players, you know, anywhere between 700 and $800 million, that if the league thought that the over-under, that the players would cave by week two, week three, week four, keep the policy secret, negotiate the deal as hard as you can do it and when the league thinks that they've won tell them (laughs) surprise
0: (laughs) (laughs) which we did which we did and does that go down as one of the most seismic moments in the history of the NFL it must do
1: well I'm sure if you talked to to Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft they'd say no but um, (laughs) I was there for the sweat on their brow so I would
0: say yes it did it it um and yeah, that I mean, presumably then set your career. That there you were. That uh, you. I don't know, but I mean. Well, you've you've been doing it for years, man. So I mean, they must. I set. can't
1: get another job.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's no. Surprise. Um,
1: yeah, it it um, for the ethos of the union, I looked at it as as a moment where the owners thought that this would be the day that they would make our union weak forever, and every deal after that would just be a. A yellow union, a soft union that has to agree to a deal because they, they're they broken. But we also realized, look, if we don't win this, <laughs> there's no doubt, D. It's, Smith is gone, Yeah, right? And, um, but thankfully, you know, the, really, I mean, a, a, a lot of credit goes to Duncan and his team and to Dave Barrett, Heather McPhee, because it it remains, I think, one of the most complicated vehicles of all time. And most importantly, for 32 billionaires who wake up every morning believing that you know we we call it in America arriving on third base they think that they hit a triple for a group of people who thought that they were the masters of the universe they realized that you know
0: they weren't they weren't fascinating and so fast forward 11 years you've announced that you're not good that's it you've done five terms so, so at the end of this year you're done i'm done give us a health check we get a lot of american football here as i said we get it on tv we get games now obviously coming to london How do you leave the game? What's not your legacy, but what is American football now, and where do you see it going in the next two to three years?
1: I, I think the best thing about American football is we've achieved a balance where the business doesn't have to come at the pure expense of the workers. Let's just make it abundantly clear. Football is a dangerous game. Our average career is three and a half years. Our injury rate is 100%. It's 100%. And so, you know, that's the frame. And, and to me, the, the job of the union was to not necessarily protect the game, but to protect the player. And if we can figure out a way to best protect the player, we will figure out how to manage the game. And that's what we've done. So I think the legacy will be that football is a game that's, you know, despite sometimes our best interest, um, we continue to make, uh, make money. You know, revenue this year will be somewhere close to 20 billion, um, which is insane. I think the work of the union has been incredibly strong. We've built healthcare systems. We've, you know, when I came into this business, for example, just on the health and safety front, the head of the league's concussion committee was a rheumatologist. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a punchline, (laughs) (laughs) but literally the person making decisions about the neurological healthcare of every NFL player was a rheumatologist. So there were no concussion protocols. There were no sideline concussion experts. There were no protocols for what happens when players get hurt. Doctors could be hired from, from anywhere. We credential every doctor now. We can hire and fire sideline concussion experts like we did last year. We monitor all of our healthcare. All of the player data belongs to the players. So we've reached, you know, I think we've reached enough of an equipoise where I think, I think we can justify the business, and well, that's
0: the job. Well, it's been a, it's been an extraordinary career. Um, and before um, we let you go. Um this is the part of the show that I call the Captain's Broadside.
1: Okay, here we go. Which
0: is where I kind of ask you a, a series of they're not quite random questions, but they, they interest me. Yep. And that's all that matters really. So you, you've come aboard my ship, the yep. Reef Gauche, and we can sail, because it's a ship anywhere in the world that you your heart desires. Um, so what's your chosen destination and, and where can we drop um, you off? Cape Town. Okay, that's a good. That's a good. Good journey from London. That gives us <laughs> you plenty. said anywhere. Yeah, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. This crew <laughs> will get you there. And as my guest, we're going to feed you. And the first night, the great joy is you get to choose the menu. Oh. And the rules are: it's a three-course menu, and I'll lob in cheese as a fourth course. <laughs> okay. So don't worry about cheese that. is off. Cheese notes there. <laughs> okay, okay. But this is your three-course. What is it?
1: Uh, I like. Look, I'd, I'd have to choose my mother's cooking because it's it's the best on the planet. Fried chicken, uh, mashed potatoes, candied yam, sweet potatoes, corn on the cob, lemonade. Okay. And
0: yeah, tequila. Yeah. <laughs> tequila. <laughs> Very good. Well, all of that, all of that can be done, and we're also going to give you a beautiful ensuite cabin oh. with a power shower, which is odd for an 18th century pirate ship. Okay, <laughs> fine. Go go with me. What song does Dee sing in the shower? Oh, oh, that's easy. Uh, Brandy by Looking
1: Glass. <laughs> okay. And as a little kid growing up, yeah, everybody under 20, yeah. under 30 is like, what?
0: Yeah. It's is all right. He, there are no listeners. Is he out on the acid? Yeah, no, old, this is an old person show. Um, what was the first album that for the younger listeners for a CD or? It no, used to be like, a yeah, 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 vinyl. What, disc. what was the first thing come you on, ever went on. into the shop? What did you buy?
1: First album, uh, Jackson 5. Michael Jackson, well, you know, another album, two for two on cancer. You good dancer? Fantastic dancer.
0: Are you? Oh, yeah. OK, we can, we'll see that later. Oh, yeah. And do you remember what your first car was?
1: Yes, a beige 350 Camaro that and- I inherited, believe it or not, from my mother. And my, mother, my mother drove with racing gloves. <laughs> true, true. So yeah, uh, her, the, the, the hand-me-down car was her beige 350 horsepower Camaro.
0: And was it your favorite car ever? Still is. Yeah. Still is. Do you remember what your, I have to say remember, you may not, you're, you're getting to an age. Do you remember what your first ever live gig was? Uh, blah, earth, Wind & Fire. Interesting. Yeah. Dates you, but that's fine. um, Also, how many Super Bowls have you been to? Fifteen. 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 And And by the way, I know it's on everybody's bucket
1: list. It's just okay. Is that right? (laughs) I think it's just okay, and here's why. The halftime show for the Super Bowl, most people don't realize this, the halftime show is designed for people watching on TV. The halftime show live isn't nearly as good as watching it on TV. Right. So, I mean, it's another game, and it's great, and I'm walking around the stadium shaking hands and you know doing what I have to do. But the halftime show, you're kind of like, eh, man, I wish I was
0: at... So what was the best one you ever saw?
1: U2, uh, po- yes, U2.
0: Okay. And what would your... If you were in charge of the this, this show going <laughs> forward, who would you put on? Prince. You, alive or dead, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I would, it would be prints every super bowl and obviously the, the, the crew will be interested to know you. they'll put you to bed after this vast dinner we've got to make you uh is your favorite nightcap tequila I yes mean, is that is that basically that the is answer? my nightcap uh, that is yeah, the i got a,
1: a, a bottle of avion 44
0: frozen in the in the freezer just enough to
1: just enough to say night night
0: and um if you've been when you've been to par when you've been to parties um Pari- karaoke okay, what's your uh, what's your song that you can you give to the world Brandy by Looking Glass. Still, oh, oh it's man, the shower, crush. and it's oh, yeah. I can crush brandy. Okay, well, wow, oh, yeah. we, we may have to. She's see a this. fine girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then my final question, which you may have answered earlier, but um, it's interesting. This is a pirate ship, as you've seen, and the crew, the crew are very fierce, as you've seen. Um, but pirate ships were primarily there to smuggle. Yes,
1: smuggle, steal, loot,
0: yeah, exactly, all yeah. of that stuff, yeah. and they'll do all the of good that stuff. But the good stuff. We've got amazing treasure chest which will, we can leave on a desert island and leave safe things in for you. Mm. Is there something along the way? And you may have answered it. I'm just interested. Is there something that you've collected from your, your life and your world? that you can't be a human being because you can't put them in a treasure chest. Okay, that that's would be off, ridiculous. Done. That's <laughs> But is there right. something that you've acquired over the years? that Like you an would, item, like an yeah. article.
1: Um, after my son won the national championship, he cut a piece of the net for my wife and I and I would put a piece of that championship net in that treasure chest. Wonderful.
0: Well, listen, Dee, um, we could and will, I think, go long into the night um, <laughs> to talk about, <laughs> and a lot of people will want to meet you, but you've been in a, an amazing guest, one particularly for amazing you coach. and, your, well, and you. your team and for Karen to, to come over to, to London, particularly on her birthday, oh, um, yeah. but to join us on the Reeve Gauche and at the captain's table. And I'd obviously like to thank the sponsor, um, uh, brilliant sponsor, Howden Brokers, who have looked after all, all of, of us today. All of us. Um, to our listeners, please um, make sure you review the shows. It's really important. It gets the, the listeners up. Um, h- how can we follow you on Twitter? Uh, <laughs> uh, at or Demarra do you not Smith, tweet? I don't really tweet.
1: Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at, at Demar Smith Smith uh, or at NFLPA or at Demar Smith at NFLPA on Twitter.
0: Very good, and you can follow Entertained as an Entertained R and me, Giles Morgan at Giles Morgan seventy one. But on behalf of Howard Sport and Entertainment Team, D Smith, thank you very much. Wonderful for crew, on. thank you. <laughs>